shifting and Paul actually becoming kind of the centerfold of this story for the second half of the book of Acts. And we see in chapter 19, this is the first time that Paul sets his gaze on going to Rome, which again will be something that we see come to fruition in chapter 30 of tonight's text. In Acts 19, 21, the scriptures say, now after, this, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and get to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And it's important to note that as we hear Rome, as we head towards Rome, to the ancient world, Rome is kind of viewed as the ends of the earth, as they're going forth to make this commission a reality Rome is on the forefront of their mind. You see, Rome is the capital of the Gentile world. We all know the saying, all roads lead to Rome. And so there he goes, setting off, trying to reach the end of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think as we know, where the gospel heads, opposition is often right behind or even in front of you. And he gets this, this calling to go to Rome in chapter 19. And then we see, again, in chapter 19, we see a riot in Ephesus where they're trying to actually kill Paul in the streets. Followed by chapter 20 where we see Jews actually plotting to, once again, kill Paul for what he believes and what he is preaching. In chapter 21, we see a riot in the Jerusalem temples where, once again, they're trying to destroy Paul, discredit what message he is bringing in chapter 23, we see the Sanhedrin, which again is the ruling kind of council of the Israelites, trying to tear him from limb to limb. And then in chapter 23, you have this amazing kind of pause in the midst of it uh, that Trevor spoke on two weeks ago, where Jesus enters the story and brings comfort. In Acts 23, verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him, this is Paul, and said, Take courage, for have you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Just at that moment where he's kind of at the lowest of low, Jesus steps in to bring comfort. And then literally the very next verse, the Jews plot to kill Paul. Forty men say, hey, I'm not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. Little side note. Paul lived for a much longer period of time after that, so I have no idea what happened to the 40 individuals, but hopefully at some point they, they retracted this vow to not eat or drink. And then it ends with him spending a few years in prison waiting to finally make his appeal to Caesar in Rome. Through all of this, we continue to see that God will and does triumph over all opposition in the spread of his gospel, because in every one of these situations, Paul still continued to proclaim the gospel, and people still continued to come to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Lives were changed. Nothing will hinder God until his mission is complete. No one can step in the way of the Almighty God. Everywhere Paul goes, the message is shared, and people believe. And finally, we arrive at 
tonight's text, chapter 27, where this, this journey that has taken years to finally come to fruition is, he is here. And he begins his journey to Rome. And we'll see in chapter 27 through half of 28, this adventure full of treacherous weather and peril on his way to Rome. It just seems like people are attacking him, and now we even see how nature, its very self, is attacking him. Zach, if you can pull up um, that graphic to begin with. Um, it's probably harder to see in the back, but I'll walk you guys through it. Uh, this is going to be the journey that Paul goes on as he heads to Rome. All of 27 and a half of 28 is just this epic kind of journal slash log that Luke writes as they make this journey. And so Paul and prisoners and this guy named Julius who's overseeing them, they leave Jerusalem. They head to Caesarea and get on a boat. It's important to note that Romans did not have their own naval um, or like navy, and so they're pretty much just hitchhiking their way to Rome, which as we can tell is quite a distance to travel. And so in their first boat, they get in at Caesarea and start to head along the coastlines and end up looping around Cyprus to finally end up at Myra, which again is kind of in the center of your screen. And from there, they, they get off their first boat and get onto a second boat, one much larger. We're told that it actually holds 276 people. So we're talking a very large ship. And they leave Myra and start to head off towards Snidus. But again, they don't have motors on these things. So wherever the wind takes them, the wind takes them. And so they get pulled south. And you go to the next slide. And it starts to pull them around Crete, which is this island. And in, in, a, in an attempt to stay close to shore, they're finally able to dock at Fair Havens. And Luke makes note of the date here, saying it's right after, uh, it's right after, excuse me, um, the, it's right after the fast. And so it's after the Day of Atonement. So we're looking at early October, where the weather is starting to get extremely tre treacherous on the seas. Most times people would completely stop traveling for all of winter. And so Paul says, we should just stay at Fair Havens. But the rest of the crew is like, no, we need to move on, and we're going to head towards Phoenix, which is some 40 miles away. And so they depart from Fair Havens, and Phoenix is not on this map, but it would be on the upper corner of Crete. And before you know it, it says, a tempestuous wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster, rains down upon their ship. And they're completely driven off course. We see kind of the whirlwind effect on this screen as they get into a storm and are simply fighting for their life. Within day one, they're lowering their anchors, which is a way of being able to slow down the ship, um, to be able to hopefully be able to steer it. Um, and, and they didn't have much luck with that, but they knew they needed to stay off the banks of Africa because there was these shifting sandbanks that would literally leave your ship stuck in the middle of the ocean um, on sand. By day two, they're actually starting to toss all of their cargo overboard, just saying like, hey, we, we just need to try to keep this boat afloat. Um, they're throwing ropes underneath their ship to tie the ship together uh, to simply be able to keep it contained. 
And by, three, by day three, they're actually throwing over their tackle, which is their extra ropes, their extra sails. Um, something called the main yard, which for the boat, it's kind of this part. They threw off the main structure, just saying like, hey, we don't care where we're going. We just need to make sure we stay alive. And it says they've gone for days without sun or stars. And again, in that day, you navigated through the stars. And so you can't see anything. You're just literally just hoping you can make it to land somewhere. And Luke kind of makes this concluding statement in verse 20 where he says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. But then an angel of the Lord enters the story. And kind of like we heard about in chapter 23, an angel of the Lord comes to Paul once again. And in verses 24 through 26, the angel of the Lord says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So then Paul tells the men, he says, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So just at that moment when everybody feels like, hey, all hope is lost, we're going to throw in the towel and probably die on this ship, God enters the story. He says, no, I've got you. What I told you was going to happen will happen. So we're told that the storm continues for two full weeks. Can you imagine 14 days at sea having no idea where you're going and no idea if you will survive until you get this glimpse of hope. And so you really hope that this God of Paul's is a true God. Two weeks goes by, and they finally see land on the horizon. Which as a reader, that's kind of this sigh of relief, like, whew, we made it. There, there's, there's hope in front of us. Yet before they make it to land, they almost experience mutiny, where the ship, I mean, the, the crew wants to take the lifeboat and run for it. And on top of that, Paul almost experiences execution as the soldiers are like, hey, we need to kill all these prisoners because if any of them escape, it's going to be my life instead of theirs. But through, uh, through an array of events of, of Paul's, Paul's leadership, neither of those things happen, and all 276 people make it to shore safely. And, and they arrive in chapter 28. I'm at this, this land they've never seen before. And it's the island of Malta. And again, the, the locals come to treat these shipwrecked, these shipwrecked men, and they build a fire for them, which sounds great. And then Paul enters the story once again, and within a verse, a viper comes out of the heat and bites Paul's arm. And this was, this was a poisonous viper where all the people of Malta were like, oh, this is, this is karma. This is, this is a god saying you're a murderer and... Maybe you got off that ship, but you're still going to die. Yet Paul simply just shakes off the viper into the, into the fire and goes on with life as usual. 
And while he's on Malta, he, he comes to meet the chief of Malta named Publius and spends three days with Publius where he ends up healing his father and then healing everybody on the island that needed any kind of healing for ailments or diseases. And they stay there for three months and then finally set sail for Rome. Again, this epic journey to get to Rome. And we finally get to Rome in verse 14 of chapter 18. Again, we started in 27, but really we started in chapter 19. It's finally coming to fruition in 13, I mean in 30, verse 17. And Luke just says, and so we came to Rome. Like so nonchalant after everything they just experienced. So we, we, we came to Rome after that. No big deal. And as we enter Rome, we as the readers should be feeling, oh, this is, this is the climax. This is what we've been waiting for. Paul will finally make his appeal to Caesar. Yet Luke doesn't record Paul's appeal to Caesar. Instead, this is what Luke records. Uh, join me in verse 17. We're going to read 17 of chapter 28 through the end of the chapter. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or our customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letter from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Pause real quickly to even just see God's hand in the midst of this story, where as, as we've seen up to this point, Paul is going from city to city, and typically when he goes to a city, all of these Jews from other cities come to that area to stir up trouble and to make lies and accusations against Paul. And yet here we see he's in Rome and none of that has happened. Nothing evil has been spoken of Paul. And better yet, they're like, we actually want to hear what you have to say about this, this the way, um, because we, we hear it's, it's wrong, but we'd love to hear and get more information on it. Just the hand of God in the midst of it. Verse 23, and so when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to all the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the laws of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. 
For this people's heart have grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the gospel of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul enters Rome, and we expect this amazing appeal before Caesar, the king of kind of the known world. And instead, it seems that Paul just picks up where he left off. He goes to a new city, meets with his fellow brothers, the Jews, and tries to convince them of who Jesus Christ actually is and how they ought to give their life over to him. Some listen and believe, and some don't. Some mock. Yet with the end of Acts, we, we see Acts 1-8 actually coming to fruition in their kind of known world. This book is saturated with obstacles and opposition to the gospel. We see that Jews and Gentiles throughout the whole book have been trying to discredit Paul or kill Paul or kill some of the other apostles. They were successful on many occasions just trying to stop the proclamation of the gospel. And then in today's story, we see how nature itself, the sea and the serpent, trying to put a stop to the kingdom of God. But God is victorious. His plans are never thwarted. And Christians, we can cling to that truth today. Just as it is in Acts, it is today that God will triumph over all opposition in the spread of his gospel message. And as, as we cling to that hope, as we cling to that promise, I believe we can, we can leave tonight seeing a promise and a challenge out of this text and really out of this main thrust that God will be triumphant. So the promise God is present in the midst of the storms of life. When the tempestuous winds of life blow and the waves seem to overcome you, look for the fingerprints of God. I guarantee you they are there. Let's even just look at this story today to see where the fingerprints of God's grace are present in Paul's life. We see in 27 verse 3 where the centurion, Julius, treats Paul kindly and lets him hang out with his friends and be cared for. I mean, what, what man's like, yeah, hey, you're a prisoner, you're probably a bad guy because you're a prisoner, but you can go hang out with your friends and be cared for. And then later, that same man, Julius, is the one that does not let the prisoners be killed because he somehow still cares for Paul. We see in verse 23 that an angel of the Lord comes to Paul and comforts him in a time of need and therefore comforts the whole ship. The people of Malta in, in verse 2 of 28 show unusual kindness. 28 verse 7, Publius and Malta entertained them and was hospitable. And then 8, 28 verse 15, I mean 30 verse 15, Paul is met by an 
entourage waiting for him in Rome. So he has these brothers that come up and say, hey, we want to hang out with you and, and continue this journey together. See, the temptest wind blew, but the Spirit of God blew harder. God continually shows up in this story. During the storms of life, look for God's fingerprints. We serve a God that says, I will never leave or forsake you. And we know that he is a God of truth, and so therefore when he says something in his scriptures, we can cling to that. We can find hope in that. You know, I think it's important to note that knowing that God will be triumphant over all opposition does not mean that our life will be a cakewalk. I mean, I think if we look even somewhat at the story of Paul, we can definitely tell you that the Christian walk is not always a cakewalk. And if we look at the history, all of the apostles died martyr deaths for Christ. John Piper, we have a quote from him uh, that we'll put up on the screen, uh, makes this statement. He says, life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road. Switchback after switchback, God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after uh, the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. As, as I read this text and as I reflected in my own life, I'm challenged by this. As I look over the last year of my life, last year of ministry, I can say without a doubt that it has been the most challenging year of ministry to date. Early on, I had to deal with staffing changes um, and people kind of moving away for a season. Um, I went, this last year, I worked for Young Life as well, and this last year I went without a direct overseer, direct boss. Um, I had difficult conversations I've had to have with students and fellow leaders, conversations I've never had to have before. And I've had situations where I truly had no idea what to do. Yet the beauty is, as I look at those seasons, as I look at those events, I am confident beyond doubt that God was present in the midst of all of it. When I felt my lowest of low, so often God would put somebody in my life, uh, a student that's having life transformation happening and just giving me enough to keep going. When I found that my relationships were struggling, God blessed me with relationships of guys in the fraternity where Anna and I are house parents. Or God providing me with guys that are eager for discipleship to grow in their relationship with God. He gave me the words and the situations where I said I had no idea what to say. I was filled with the knowledge to say something. My time away with God was encouraging. The people around me, my wife, my friends, this encouragement. I'll say this last year, there was a lot of storms in life. Yet for each of those storms, 
like Paul, I had those moments where, where God either was able to step in and speak to me or God used somebody else to step in and speak in the midst of that storm. And I encourage you to reflect on the past. I know if we are currently going through a storm of life, if we're struggling with relationships with others, significant others, or family, or if we're struggling in our relationship with God, or we're dealing with depression or anxiety or just the frustration of the season of life that we're in, it's really hard to actually pull ourselves out of that. But I encourage you to, to look to the promises of God. Because in the promises of God, we know those are true regardless of how we're feeling. But if we're able to pull ourselves out, to pull our head up and just look and see at the past, to see where God is present, so often we see that God shows his grace, both in our time away from him as scripture, but then also the people in our lives. There's a power in the presence of people. And we see that in the story tonight in chapter 18, I mean 28, verse 15. As Paul is headed to Rome, it says, And the brothers, who are fellow Christians there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanks God and took courage. This is kind of the idea of we, we go to the airport to kind of welcome a friend home to simply ride back to their house with them. They don't actually need us to ride back with them. Yet there's that bonding of, hey, we're, we're in this together. I support you. I love you. So therefore, I'm going to spend the time to go welcome you. I mean, these men that went to Paul, he did not get to Rome any faster because of that. But we see that he thanks God and took, had courage because of it. He knows he has Christians that link arms with him. And so as we look at our community, as we look at the branch, are we looking for people to go out and meet? Are we looking to be like these brothers that are like, hey, I know Paul's struggling. I'm going to go out and meet him. And again, in our terms, this looks a lot different, but are we going to have coffee with people? Are we being intentional of actually getting to know what's going on in the reality of the lives of those around us? As we begin our community groups again in a month or so, are we, are we using our community groups as an opportunity to be intentional and relational? Are we sharing our needs? Are we then actually stepping up and filling those needs? We get the opportunity to be the fragrance of God's grace in the lives of those around us in this very room and in the lives of those that might never step foot in this room. God is present in the midst of the storms. And a lot of times he uses us to be that presence. But we just need to open our eyes to see what God has done in and through us and around us. I did an exercise a few years ago uh, where we'd come to the end of a school year. And so in, in a journal, we wrote down each month of that school year, and then spent the next hour or so, uh, month by month, looking and seeing, okay, what, what did God teach me in the month of January? Where did God show up? Moved to February. What did I learn in this month about myself? Where did God show up? What did God teach me? 
And I encourage you, if, if you struggle with, with the storms of life, or if you struggle with being like, is God actually there? Because I feel like I'm just a ship that's getting tossed in the waves, and is he actually there? I encourage you to take an exercise like this to heart. And to just start methodically looking back over a year and saying, okay, God, I believe you were there. Now, please reveal to me as I spend time in this to show me where you were. God is present in the midst of the storms. We're also left tonight with with a challenge. And that challenge is to proclaim the kingdom of God with all boldness, and without hindrance. We ought to ask the question, why why does Luke end Acts the way he does? Why no appeal to Caesar? Why kind of no concluding statement or this prologue at the end that kind of gives, hey, this this is where Paul went after that, or this is what happened. It just abruptly ends with, and Paul spent two years in Rome preaching the gospel. One commentator states that the abrupt ending leaves us with the challenge and opportunity to allow the Spirit to write the next chapter in the book of Acts today in and through us. The book of Acts has also been called the Acts of the Apostles, Um, but I would argue that maybe a better name would be the Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, because we see throughout the whole book how Jesus and the Holy Spirit are actually the central figure leading and directing these disciples, these apostles, giving them comfort and hope in the midst of being torn down and weary. And the beauty is those main characters, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, are still alive today. And they're active in the lives of their believers. We get the privilege of stepping into the story of Acts and running full steam ahead. We're left with the challenge to pick up the reins and to keep moving forward. We are challenged just like, I love how the book ends, and I do not think this is a coincidence. It ends with Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And why can we proclaim with all boldness and without hindrance? The very gospel message is the reason we can proclaim Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. We know the end result because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ. Just as the serpent tried to thwart Paul's plan and God's plan on the island of Malta. Satan, the prince of lies, the very serpent himself in the garden, tried to thwart God's plan by sending Jesus to the cross. What Satan thought was victory was actually God's plan all along. Though Satan bruised Jesus' heel, Jesus crushed his head, and we know that three days later, Christ rose from the grave. Jesus' victory over death has actually brought life to us. 
We're told that we were dead in our ways, but when Christ steps in, when Christ took our place and died at the cross, the death that we deserved, we were actually given life. We were given new life. We're told we're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And so we can preach the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance because we are now in Christ. Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, as a follower of Jesus, death is no longer a fear. Death is no longer a burden, something that holds us back. Rather, we say to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, we have nothing to lose as followers of Jesus Christ. The temptest waves of life may blow, but the Spirit of God blows harder. We can always cling to the promises of God, and I believe that promise starts with the gospel. And then we move forward. And just as nothing could stop Paul in the proclamation of his gospel until God said so, it's the same with us today. And that's regardless of the rejections of the gospel or opposition. The gospel of Jesus Christ always moves forward. That's what I love about the story of Paul is he goes somewhere. People believe, others don't. He doesn't get bogged down by those that don't, but he moves on to the next city and says, hey, I'm gonna tell you about this man named Jesus. Some believe, some don't, and he moves on time and time and time again. Do we have the same approach with our friends, with our neighbors, with our fellow students? See, in the spreading of the gospel, we can be confident in God because we know the end result. We've read this book. We know what's coming in Revelation. We know that every knee will bow before our God. And so we go out in light of that. God will always and forever be triumphant in the spreading of his gospel. I'm gonna close with the words of Job who's a man that endured probably in some sense more suffering and pain than we could ever imagine in our life. And we get to the very end of Job, the last chapter. And this is the last statement Job has to God in that book. And it's a statement that I hope we cling to and move out tonight with this on our mind. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So go forth in boldness and without hindrance, because the King of kings and the Lord of lords has proclaimed a victory. Let's pray. Oh God, you are, you are a good God that we can cling to um, in the storms of life, that we can hold firm when the winds are blowing and the waves are tossing us to and fro, God, knowing that you, do ne you never leave us or forsake us, but you are present, God. I mean, you're not just picking up the messes of life, but you're actually in the trenches with us. God, I pray for those of us tonight that are